Uh, so we want to look at some of these things. And, you know, as I look at it, I, I, probably, I probably spent more time in tears on this message than any other message. <clears throat> Sorry. But if it doesn't move you today, I just ask you to go home and look for yourself in the book of Hebrews, the book of better things, and what Jesus did for you. The price He paid to make it a connection between you and God, the price He was willing to pay for that connection is just amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so I hope the the new covenant can grip all of our hearts. If it doesn't grip you this morning, I, I hope you can be inspired to look past me and look in the book of Hebrews and see what God through Jesus Christ has done for us. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 9 Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. If you think back to covenant with the Hebrew children, what was that covenant that He would make them a nation? What was their hope? Their hope was in that nation. Their hope was that through that nation they could exemplify the power of God. Their hope was that they could be a nation together in the land of Israel and they would have a strength that proved that God exists. They, They could be, would you say, a strong arm of military might. That they could prove God is among us. And, and that was their hope, was that outer strength of proof. Also the hope of that nation, the hope that they had was that they could be a nation of peace, that they could be a nation of overcomers and victory over anybody who tried to um, influence them or come against them. They had this covenant that they was God's people and they wanted to prove to the world how God is all-powerful. Because of that setup of the first covenant, men of the old covenant, I believe, as I read the Old Testament, they moaned the fact of death because their hope was in this life. If you're killed, even in fighting for the right, if you, you won't share the result of that hope, right? As you read in Psalms, you'll read many Psalms that are, David is pleading with God to save him from the grave. Psalms 33.3 O Lord, Thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Thou hast kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. It was extremely important for the Old Covenant people that they're partakers of this covenant. And to be a partaker, you had to stay alive, right? You, you can't be killed and, and be buried and be partakers of that Old Covenant promise where they were a nation and they were strong and they showed that God was in their midst. Psalm 88.11 Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave? Or thy faithfulness in destruction? How can we say God is faithful if David is killed? That's what he's, the question he's asking. How can this be? Now, switch that over into the New Covenant. Can you imagine Paul praying that? Lord, your faithfulness. When I saw Stephen die, where was your faithfulness? Uh, we're being killed all the day long. God, you're not faithful. It's a completely different picture. The new covenant compared to the old covenant. Psalms 33, Psalms 88, verse 10. David asked, Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise thee? 
See, the new covenant, the answer is yes. That's exactly right. The dead will arise and praise thee. In the old covenant, what they lived for, what they pushed themselves for, was something that was in reality on this life. So they did everything they could to stay away from the grave to prove God is faithful. The new covenant doesn't put our hope on this earth. The new covenant has a word that is the foundation of the new covenant. And the word is resurrection. Resurrection, the word is found 41 times in the Bible. Zero times in the Old Testament. 41 times in the New Testament. Why? Because it is our hope. That's our hope. In the resurrection. You don't have a good life now. We don't say, Jesus never said your best life now as far as now you're going to have money, you're going to be healthy, you're going to be wealthy. You're going to show that God is faithful by how you are successful. That's not the new covenant. That's the old covenant. The new covenant says we believe in a resurrection and we have a hope and we have a home that He has promised to us. And if you kill us, that's fine with us. Because God is faithful even in suffering and even in death. In fact, He's even more proved that He is empowering His saints when they face tribulation and death. Hebrews 9.15 We're going to be jumping around in Hebrews quite a bit. And for this cause, He is a mediator of the New Testament that by means of death Listen, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, listen, that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. That's the better covenant. The old covenant was, your inheritance is the land of Israel. The new covenant is, we have an eternal inheritance. It doesn't matter if we are killed all the day long. Our hope, we don't have to bemoan the fact, Lord, save us from the grave. Because we have a hope that's right beyond the grave. That's the new covenant. So I look at the first change. That why the new covenant brings us life and hope and joy. And what Jesus truly paid for in the new covenant, number one, I believe, is an undying hope. Romans 8.36, For thy sakes we are killed all the day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Okay? In the Old Covenant, they would say, Lord, save us. This is what the New Covenant says. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Our hope's just on the other side. That's the New Covenant. You would never have that if Jesus didn't pay that price that we celebrate today. You would never have that. I would never have that. That's New Covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 again. The second thing that he paid for in the new covenant is now he is a personal God. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness 
And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. I've struggled for a long time on what is this saying, and I'm open for correction. As I look at it, I, I see the hope of the new covenant resting in here. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, it's described as a time of ignorance when God winked at His people and the error of their way. Um, and if you put yourself in the Old Covenant, they were only able to receive truth as it was spoken to them. It wasn't through the written Word. It was, it was not interpreted by the Holy Spirit. It was the neighbor... It was a great-grandpa. It was your dad who taught their children, who taught their neighbor. Know the Lord. This is what the Lord wants of you. They didn't have the written Word as each one of us have. They had a priest who could read the written Word. And what the priest or what the neighbor told you, know the Lord, this is what the Lord desires, I hope He's right. Right? I hope he's right. But can you imagine if it was that you had no Bible and you had no way of gaining knowledge of what the Lord wants of you unless you come through one man here at church? And and, and if Claire was the man, a lot of weight would rest on Claire's shoulders. And you, you, have, you have no clue what happens, what the Lord really wants unless Claire says the right thing to you. That was the setup of the Old Covenant. The setup of the Old Covenant was the priest, when he read, remember when Ezra read the law? People wept. They, they, they couldn't read that for themselves. They, they, they were hearing it through the prophets, through the priests. That, that's how they heard the Word. And so rather than God coming to you directly through His Word, by His Spirit, in your own prayer closet, he came through the man who spoke, Know the Lord. This is what you need to know of the Lord. <clears throat> so their only way of helping people know the Lord was speaking from religious rulers, from neighbors who could read, who knew the Lord. In the New Covenant, God has a personal relationship with every one of His people, small or great, David or the prophets had a personal connection with God. Did that go to the run-of-the-mill people? I don't think so. God spoke through those prophets, through David, to the run-of-the-mill people. It completely changes in the New Covenant. There is a personal connection. And the reason for the personal connection is in verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Jesus brought that in by the shedding of His blood. And now we don't have to go to Claire, don't have to go to David of the Old Testament and say, how can we know the Lord? Because Jesus Christ shed His blood, because there is forgiveness of sins, because He washes away our iniquities, and it says, I remember them no more. Because of that, we can now come to Jesus Christ. We can come to the Father through His Word, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, and it's a personal connection. It's you at home in your closet. Does that mean we can now ignore people that are spiritually over us? 
because I have a personal connection with the Lord. The New Covenant speaks of how we reverence and love each other in the church. The New Covenant says, submit yourselves one another. It's not about a thing of, well, i got a personal connection with God, so I'm over in my little corner, you go over in your little corner, and we'll each be in our own little corner, and there's no love connection. There is a love connection in the New Testament. But it has nothing to do with, it has to come through the leader, or you don't know how to know the Lord. We live in the New Covenant where God has opened up a personal relationship with us. When we are failing in our personal connection, personal Bible study, personal prayer, we're failing in the New Covenant. That's serious. He's, he, he died, He suffered, He shed His blood for our opportunity to be part of the New Covenant and have a personal relationship. The third thing that the New Covenant brings is a change to the law. I believe this one's extremely important to understand. Jesus did not take away the moral law. In fact, He increased the moral law's demands. A person who is part of the kingdom of God and the New Covenant must abide in the demands of the law of God or Jesus said He's none of His. So what changes to the law? How can we say the law changed and yet we say if we don't abide in the law of God, we're none of His? How are these things together? <clears throat> the law in the Old Testament had a way to be justified in God's sight. I hope we understand that. The law in the Old Testament, if you failed and you killed someone, they had a ceremonial law in the Old Testament that you went through different ceremonies and you could be justified again. Uh, there was a way in the Old Testament law that you could be justified and that you could have that blemish behind you. Um, if there was... There were certain washings that you did. There were sacrifices, animal sacrifices that you did for sin. Um, these were all ceremonial things. Why were there ceremonial things? Because the moral law was failed and now you need to perform the ceremonial law in order to be right again. There were, you couldn't just say, well, I broke the law, but God forgives. Shrug your shoulders. You had to be taken care of through the ceremonial law. <clears throat> If someone sinned, they were guilty of the law of condemnation. And they could become justified by the ceremonial process of the law. Now look at verse, or chapter 9, verse 9 of Hebrews. <clears throat> this ceremonial situation, verse 9 says, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience which stood only in meats and drinks and divers Washington, washing and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Now, if you look at the word Reformation, it means the time of the Messiah. These, these washings that were imposed, um, the sacrifices, these divers Washingtons, washing, yeah, Washingtons, washings and drinks and things that were being performed, that was sufficient for cleansing until the time of Reformation, until the time of the Messiah. Now, if you could put yourself in the Jewish situation, 
for thousands of years, when you have broken the law, you understood one fact. Ceremonial, ceremonially, you can become clean. Through washings, through sacrifice, through that ceremonial law, for thousands of years, you could become clean. And now, it changes. The law changes. Now, the moral law does not change, but the ceremonial law completely changes. Now, if you read in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 3, it speaks a lot to this subject. I think I need to turn there to just get the gist of that. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. So the law is still there, still in effect, still bringing condemnation to people that you have sinned. But then it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, the exciting part here is the law still condemns. But there is nothing in the law that can make you clean. It does not have the answer. The only answer at the time of the Reformation, at the time of the Messiah, the answer for the law is now found in Christ and Christ only. There's no amount of washings you can do. There's no amount of good deeds you can do. There's no church that you can attend and say, now I'm part of a church. Now I'm part of a ceremony. Surely God would recognize me as clean. It'll never happen. It'll never happen. No matter how long we're a church member, no matter how many good deeds we've done, no matter how if we dress in long robes, no matter what ceremony we try to pull together, nothing will ever appease a breaking of the law. There's only one thing. And that's Jesus Christ. He is the only answer to the law. That has completely changed from the Old Testament. It isn't any wonder those men struggled. How can this be? How can you... And Jesus made statements that completely changed the concept of the law. Can you imagine being in the crowd... When Jesus said, hear and understand this. I could picture everybody being quiet. Not he, sorry, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man. But that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth the man. He's completely changing the law. He's saying, hear and understand this. You people are washing all these hands and bowls because you want to be clean and avoid. But that doesn't do you any good. It's not what you put in your mouth that does not affect it. Listen to what he says. Hear and understand. Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth the man, but that which cometh out of the mouth this defileth the man. He changed the ceremonial law in that one statement. Now, do you think the religious leaders had something to say about that? 
It says, Then came his disciples and said, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? And the word offended means scandalized. This is complete scandal. Because this is what they trusted in for thousands of years. Jesus is saying, There's no amount of cleaning. There's no ceremonial thing that you can do. To make you right before God, there is only one answer to the law of sin. And that's Jesus Christ. And that His forgiveness is the only answer. No ceremony can make you clean. Now, I find this appalling. But isn't it interesting how we as humans fall back on ceremonial cleansings? You think, well, that's just what they struggled with at the time of change. Actually, it's not. Um, There's people who put an overconfidence in sacrament or communion. They say, you know, we have... uh, You you read books of people and, and, you know, you can call out denominations here that they were sick and dying and they lived a life of sin, but on their deathbed they took the sacraments. They're good to go. That's a false hope. Why is that a false hope? Because that ceremony won't make anybody clean. It's Jesus Christ that had, through repentance and finding Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, that is how we're clean. There's a ceremony of baptism. If you accept baptism as a baby, if you accept baptism as an adult, that will make you clean. These are absolute beliefs by people. There is even a ceremony now that people use for conversion experience. Okay? Say this prayer and you're clean. It's more than saying a prayer and being clean. That's simply a ceremony. There has to be repentance. And there has to be coming to Jesus Christ because He's the only answer for the sin problem of the law. He is the only answer. There's no ceremony that can bring us to that. The moral law still brings condemnation in the New Covenant, but there's no ceremonial remedy in the law. Zero. I like what John Bunyan wrote. He said, The law says, Run, John, run. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. For better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. That's the difference between the law and of the old covenant and the new covenant. He's not just saying, do it, do it, do it. He's saying, you come to Jesus Christ. And I'll ask you to do something even beyond what the law asks. But I'm going to give you the grace to do it. I'm glad I'm part of the new covenant. It didn't come free either. The new covenant is an undying hope. A personal God, because of the forgiveness of sin, changes to the law 
Friends, today Jesus is the only remedy for sin. It's not being conservative. I will never save you from sin. It's not holding a line that says, you know, nobody else is holding it as high as I am. That will never save you from sin. There's only one thing that will save us from sin. is Jesus Christ. And through His shed blood. And as we enter into that covenant, we love to do His law. And the last, I believe, blessing of the new covenant. Turn to Leviticus chapter 16. The last blessing of the new covenant is the throne of grace. In the Old Testament law, there was set up in the tabernacle, there was the outer court, there was a holy place, and then there was a place called the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, what was contained in the Holy of Holies? Anybody know offhand? Not a long list. Okay? And they were on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant um, was there in the Holy of Holies. It's pretty close to this size right here of this, this table here. Um, and then on top of that Ark of the Covenant where it had manna and the commandments and Aaron's rod, Aaron's rod that budded, on top of that ark was what was a platform, and that was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat would have been 27 inches deep, 45 inches wide, 44, 45 inches wide. So on that mercy seat, there was two cherubims, one on each side, and their, their wings were spread out to create like a shadowing over that mercy seat. That mercy seat was built out of one piece of gold, it says. Pure gold. Incredible. And a cloud would appear between the cherubims on the mercy seat when the presence of the Lord was in the Holy of Holies. When God spoke to the people, when God spoke to the priests, when God spoke to Moses, it was from the cloud between the cherubims on the mercy seat. It was in the cloud. There was only one person who ever saw that mercy seat each year. And that was the high priest. He would enter into the Holy of Holies one time a year. And he would be in the presence of God. Now there's one thing that divided the priests and the common priests and people from the Holy of Holies. And that was a large veil. A thick veil. And only one time somebody could go beyond that veil into the presence of God. Only one time a year. And this was the event, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 12. When that priest goes into the Holy of Holies, it says, He shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony. Look what it says, that he die not. This is extremely important to get right. That he die not. And he shall take the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. Before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock. 
and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make it an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. So shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now, if you could picture yourself at the Holy of Holies as a high priest, what an awesome, what an awesome place. And knowing you get this wrong, you're a dead man. And yet, what an opportunity. You, out of millions of people, have the opportunity to go behind the veil and be right there in the presence of God. What an awesome opportunity. And yet, can you imagine the trepidation? Don't get this wrong. There was a great thick veil. And that veil was a sacred thing. Going through that veil was the only way into the presence of God. Going through that veil was the only way to behold the glory of God. Because he says, I will be on the mercy seat between the cherubims in the cloud. There's no one going to see my presence. No one going to be in my presence unless you're behind the veil. Everyone who went through the veil had two things, sweet incense and the blood of the covenant. And then one day, Jesus said something. It is finished! And that veil that was so special ripped from top to bottom. And can I say, and cast aside. And now, can I read this? Now we have a new and living way to God, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil That is to say, His flesh. Jesus Christ is the veil to the Holy of Holies. Jesus Christ is the way into the presence of God. He's the only way. It's never going to be behind a veil. You'll never go around a veil and only one person can get to see the glory of God. That veil was done away with and every Christian who calls on the name of Jesus and comes in repentance to Him, to Jesus Christ, He is coming through the veil and they can behold the glory of God. You've experienced that in your life if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. That was not available in the Old Covenant. That is available to the New Covenant believers. The glory of God is not just shown to a minister, to a bishop, to a high priest. The glory of God is found through Jesus Christ to everyone who believes in Him. The glory of God is shown to any person of any race, of any color, who enters through the veil, not just a Jewish high priest. When he said, it's finished, that means you can come in now through Jesus Christ and you can see the glory of God. This is so through the New Testament that you barely have time to start even scratching the surface of how many times he says, we have seen, let me read it, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, would shine on them. <clears throat> oh, let me find my right verse. Verse 
we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, what is it? The glory of the Lord. With an open face, we can behold the glory of the Lord. In the face of Jesus Christ. And what does it say? And because of that, we're changed. We're changed. We cannot, in the New Testament, say, you know, I don't get along with people, that's just the way I am. No, you're changed, friend. That's Old Testament living. New Testament living means we're changed. When we come and we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it changes us. Because of that awesome moment, it changes us. It changes everything. Having therefore, brethren, boldness. What an amazing thing. Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. Because of Jesus Christ, we can come boldly. Now that never happened when it was the throne of, when it was the mercy seat. Nobody ever come in there boldly or they'd be a dead man. But because of Jesus Christ, He has opened this new and living way that we can come boldly to the throne of grace by a new and living way. I, I actually believe He has renamed this throne. You'll see the word mercy seat as a compound word later in, in Hebrews, and it says, of which things we're not able to speak about. I wonder why he says that. I, I, I really don't know. But there is one throne that he speaks of repeatedly in the New Testament, and that's the throne of grace. I believe it's replaced the throne of mercy. Now we have the throne of grace where the glory of God dwells. And he speaks of that in Hebrews as well, 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We come boldly to the throne of grace and it's not just to appease. It's not just to appease God so we can have mercy for another day. It says to obtain. You're going to walk away with mercy. That's the throne of grace. You know, we spend a lot of time looking at things in our day. A lot of time looking at things. We got media all over us. Some even take media to church. I'm not here talking about that. But you know what the cry and shame is? We're in the new covenant relationship. And how those most people, even Mennonites, will spend more time looking at the news than beholding the face of Jesus Christ and seeing the glory of God. That's the shame in our day. Because it makes no difference what position we hold or how tall or how bald or how skinny we are. doesn't matter what family we were born into. He says anybody can come and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is readily available at the throne that for thousands of years even the holiest of all men, even the highest priest, would tremble and tremble and tremble. Now we as fishermen can come boldly to the throne and see the glory of God. And friends, that helps us in our time of need. The new covenant. 
What, what is this all about? What, what did Jesus institute? What are we celebrating today? We're celebrating the new covenant. He paid an incredibly high price that we can enjoy this new covenant. And that new covenant says you have an undying hope. If you lose your life, you'll save it. Friends, that's, that's, that's great news. We have a personal God. Because He forgives and washes away our sin, we can have a personal connection. It changes the law. Thank God it changes the law. We don't have to go through all kinds of ceremonial washings and cleansings and all kinds of things that we don't even understand. When we break the law, we simply come in repentance to Jesus Christ. And He says, I am the remedy for the law. And fourthly, the great change is the glory of God is for us to see. As we embrace Jesus Christ and see and recognize and say again, Thank you, Lord Jesus. I don't know who's worshiping here today. I don't know who in their heart has their heart attuned into God and His Word and the Holy Spirit. I don't know who's worshiping today. But I do know that everyone who is worshiping today senses the glory of God as they behold the face of Jesus Christ. If you're able to, would you kneel for prayer? Heavenly Father,